Greetings, everyone, and a warm welcome back to Inner Sections, where we strive to dissolve the boundaries and have East meet West, have purpose meet profit, have science meet spirituality, have the inner meet the outer in order for us to be able to fully explore the possibilities in human potential and what it must be to live a life well lived. Today, it is my great joy and pleasure to have in our midst someone who's really focused in some ways his career and his life at the very, very core of that pursuit of success and fulfillment in life. That core from where passion arises, from where greatest hungers and desires catch fire and ultimately guide the energies and directions that we take in life. Let me start by just introducing Brad to you all. So Brad is a peak performance coach and the author of a, a number of really seminal books around this idea of peak performance, including the one that we're going to talk about today, his research on passion, the passion paradox. He has a degree in organizational behavior from the University of Michigan, went on to work as a consultant at McKinsey and beyond that also did a master's in public health from the University of Michigan again, and then started to kind of really deep dive into what I'm sure he will talk to us is his passion to pursue and explore peak performance and a life well lived. He has written and coached for the last 10 years. His books have sold over 250,000 copies and uh, translated into over 15 languages. His first contribution, along with his co-author, Steve Magnus, was on the science of peak performance. He's gone on since then to write around the passion paradox, which we will talk about today. And most recently, he is starting to publish a book on the practice of groundedness, which we will come back closer to the end of our conversation and talk about as well. And um, he has also, in addition to his writing work, been active in blogging and writing articles that any or all of us can access immediately uh, in Outside Magazine, for instance, in the New York Times and the New Yorker as well. He has led workshops for leading organizations in the corporate world and uh, has worked you know, as a coach with executives and entrepreneurs and athletes and even physicians on mental health and overall well-being. He has a podcast called The Growth Equation with the co-author of his book, it's an online platform devoted to the art and science of what makes for fulfillment and success in life. Topics very close, I know, to your heart just as much as mine as well and has been featured in so many of the leading media. On that note, let me just invite Brad into our midst. Brad, welcome. Thank you for having me, Hitendra, and um, I'm thrilled to be here with you. So grateful. By the way, do you know the origins of this sign? Yeah, that was so sweet of you to, to do that as we started. So I do. I spent a summer in the Nepal Himalaya and was very much completely just taken by the Sherpa culture in the Kumbu region. So my understanding of this is the loving awareness in me honors that in you. <laughs> so, so true. Yeah, the Hindi word for it is namaste. And, and it, it always is a very heartwarming remembrance to me about how there's wisdom in, in communities all over the world, which we can all you know embrace. And one of the cool things about this sign, by the way, is in today's pandemic times where we can't hug, where we can't shake hands. <laughs> I mean, this is a pretty um, virus safe approach to, uh, towards greeting each other. So thank you for doing that. So folks, this is going to be really an incredible journey over the next hour. Because Brad, passion is something that all of us hunger for. And when we get it, we celebrate it, we get all immersed in it. And yet you have in your work taken us to a place of such nuance and such uh, care with which to really um, nurture this energy, mature it, direct it and not get consumed by it. So I I'm just looking forward very much to this conversation ahead. Where did your interest in this topic really get sparked? So the things that I write about tend to be topics that I wrestle with personally. 
So whenever I write, whether it's an essay or a book, I am writing something that I want to figure out for myself. And sometimes I get lucky and lots of other people are trying to figure it out too. So the origins of the passion paradox in a very short story is this. My co-author, Steve Magnus, and I had already submitted the manuscript for our first book, Peak Performance, and we were waiting to get edits back from our editor on that project. And Steve lived at the time in Houston, and I lived in California, so we're in different states. And we were promised edits back over this time period, I believe it was in April. So Steve made plans to fly to California, and this was, of course, long before COVID, and we were going to spend two weeks together working on the edits, going through them, and um, then submitting the final manuscript. And when Steve got there, on the second day, we heard from our editor that he was way behind. He had other projects in the queue, but that the manuscript is in great shape. The edits are very minor, and we should rest assured that there's not much work for us to do. So this was our first book with a major publishing house. And instead of having the perhaps more normal reaction of celebrating and getting a six pack of beer and just being on vacation for two weeks, Steve and I looked at each other and we said, well, crap, what are we going to do now? And that question led us to the book ultimately, because we sat with ourselves and we said, what's wrong with us? Why can't we just be content? Why can't we just take a two week vacation? Why is our first thought immediately about what's next? And we realized that in both of us, we had been told from a very young age that this inner drive or this sense of passion is such a good thing and we should be so glad to have it and to cultivate it. And here we were wondering, well, is it a good thing or wouldn't it be nice to just be able to sit on the couch and just veg out for two weeks? So it was really trying to answer that question for ourselves. Well, where does drive come from? What does drive mean? Is drive good? Is drive bad? Is it neutral? And then, you know, we decided to have our cake and eat it too. We basically said, well, let's answer this question and write a book about it. So we started working on the project in those two weeks and and one thing led to another and it became the book. You know, I think some of the most beautiful contributions in humanity are ones that do what you just said you did, which is uh, really connect with something very authentic to you and yet find a way to offer it up to the world that others can benefit from as well. And it sounds like that's the pader that you were able to strike in that moment for all of us. And, and what did you discover about passion? What surprised you in those introspections and research that you did the most? Well, I think that there are three main things that that are worth focusing on. And that's because they're all pretty strong myths in the culture. So the first thing is that you don't find a passion. And if anything, trying really hard to find a passion gets in the way of your becoming passionate about something. The second big myth is this notion that if you are fortunate enough to find a pursuit or even a person romantically that you're passionate about, that you should just follow that passion wherever it takes you. That's also not true. Passion must be handled with great care. It can be a blessing, but it can also be a curse. The root of the word passion, passio, is Latin for suffering. So the origin of passion was in the story of the historical Jesus Christ and the suffering of Christ. That's how this word passion came to be. So we think passion is this great thing, and it can be, but it can also lead to immense suffering. And then the third myth in the common culture is this notion of the two things to pursue is a highly fulfilled, peak performing, successful person, our passion and balance. And if you think about that, it makes no sense because by definition, passion is the single-minded, enthusiastic, wholehearted pursuit of something. And balance, at least the way that we interpret it typically, is equal things in equal proportion. 
So if you go to the self-help or the personal development or the business book aisle of a store, you'll see all these books on balance and all these books on passion. But it's very hard to be both balanced and passionate at the same time. That's a very helpful little navigation tool you've given us for this conversation. Those three parts that I'd love to sort of like unpack further with you. So let's take that first one. Do you think that passion is something that, you know, some people are kind of like born with and others perhaps not as, you know, gifted or, you know, blessed by? So there's some interesting research. And if you were to talk to a behavioral geneticist, they might tell you that there are certain genes associated with drive and with kind of craving for the next thing. Based on my review of all of that work, I would say that it's that science is still so young, I don't put too much stock in it, particularly because no single gene is determinant of behavior. It's a myriad of these things interacting with each other. What I would say is the key to cultivating passion is to get beyond this, again, the societal myth that it's something that you find. So the research shows that individuals that think that they're going to magically find a passion. It's called the fit theory of passion, that they're just gonna stumble onto some kind of activity or pursuit and it's gonna be perfect and they're gonna know it's for them. They are 80% less likely 10 years down the road to be working on something that they say that they're passionate about. Whereas individuals that lower the bar from passion to interesting, and instead of being so obsessed with finding a passion, they just pursue things that they're interested in, they follow their curiosity, those people are significantly more likely to end up passionate 10 years down the road. And the reason for this is quite simple, because if you have this extremely high bar of magical passion, everything's clicking, the minute that something goes wrong, which it inevitably does, you'll just assume, oh, I guess this isn't for me. I guess this isn't the thing that I'm passionate about. Whereas if you lower the bar to this is interesting, you can ride those ups and downs and you can cultivate it and the passion emerges over time. What's fascinating, and we mentioned this in the book, is this exactly mirrors almost to the exact statistic research on romantic intimacy and love. So people that believe that there's one single soulmate for them are much less likely to be in long-term relationships than people who think that there is no such thing as one soulmate, but that they can develop love with anyone. So I've come to think about love and passion the same way, which is that the goal isn't to be madly in love or madly passionate on day one, week one, or even year one. The goal is to build love or build passion over decades. And it's a shift from, again, from finding passion to cultivating it or even pursuing mastery. The the more enriched you get in something, the more it loves you back. That's beautiful. The idea that passion and love are more like, if you want to call them verbs, rather than kind of like nouns, you know, rather than a one-time state, it's a journey to be made. And it's very freeing as well. So back to love, just statistically speaking, you're a business school professor. I know you're also a soulful spiritual man. It's nice to have the thought that there's one soulmate, but there are 7 billion people in the world. So there are probably multiple people that I could be madly in love with. And to release the weight of thinking like I have to find the one really frees you to, again, to meet interesting people and to fall in love. And I only go deep on love because the same thing is true about passion. I'm right now a professional writer and coach. I love it. If you were to ask me, is that the one thing in the world that was for me? I think no, it just happens to be the thing that hooked my attention and I became interested in. That's beautiful. I, uh, I come from a culture where, you know, the idea of reincarnation is just very uh, much in the DNA. You know, So I kind of like grew up already sort of having a natural kind of affinity for that kind of an idea. And um, at one point I did reflect based on that framework that if I've lived many lives in the past, you know, I, I probably had all kinds of different interests and 
passions and members of family, you know, different brothers and sisters and spouses and parents and all of that. And so what does that mean in terms of my relationship with humanity today? And actually, it was in some ways, to your point, very liberating because it made me understand that person I meet next, who knows, may have had that person as a loved colleague in the past or as anything. And I shouldn't think of people as strangers. So I, I love that idea. I think, yeah, the big, I guess, takeaway, the big lesson there, and particularly for people early on in their career, and if, if any of the listeners are still in school or if you have kids, is to try to get rid of the language around find your passion. Because that insinuates that there's this one thing and you have to search for it. And instead, lower the bar to seek out things that interest you and pursue your interests. And when I work with coaching clients, I talk about finding your passion. People report that it makes them feel tight because there's like a pressure. I have to find this one thing. Whereas when we talk about pursuing our interests, you tend to feel more open because it's a lot easier to find things that you're interested in. Yeah, it was beautiful. Let's talk about the second part of what you were saying, right? Which is that it's not an unmitigated blessing all the time to just kind of lean into it, right? Can you talk yeah. a little bit about some of the research you've done around like the brain science around passion and how it can both be very, I think, you know, some ways intoxicating, but also very blinding? Yes. So this is probably my favorite of the three myths to talk about. And, and it was the most interesting part for me to learn about in researching and in writing this book. So I think I think the place to start is that the human mind-body system did not evolve to be content. So we evolved to keep pushing. And the reason for this is simple. Long ago in our species evolution, when we were on the savanna, there were oftentimes a famine. So if you just accomplished a big hunt, you can't be content because you don't know when your next meal will be. So we didn't evolve to be satisfied. We evolved to crave the chase. And this brain hasn't changed that much right? That's still very much how we're wired. This is why so many people will achieve a great success. They think it will make them content and happy. And then immediately, like my co-author and I, a day or two later, they're on to the next thing. So the neurochemical in the brain that's very activated in this is called dopamine. And it's a very, I guess, in vogue thing to talk about. And dopamine does many things in the brain. But one thing that the dopamine system does is it fuels the pursuit and the chase of something. So when you're falling in love, there's tons of dopamine activity. If you are struggling with substance abuse or an addiction, there's tons of dopamine activity. Well, we see the same thing in highly passionate people. Why? Because it's that same craving, it's that same chase to pursue this thing that they care deeply about. So that in part is why it's so easy to become blinded by passion because we very much get into the mindset of somebody that is falling in love or somebody that is an addict where by nature, our world narrows and going like this because we have blinders and sometimes all we can see is the object of our passion. And again, this is not good or bad, it just is. There are many entrepreneurs that have started companies that have changed the world for the better because they had this kind of tunnel vision to focus on starting that company. Any Olympian that I've befriended or worked with, they better have that tunnel vision, otherwise they're not gonna make it to the big stage. The downside is when this blinds you to other things that are important and the trade-offs that you're making don't fit your values. So I'm very clear about this. It's not good or bad. It can be good. It can also be bad. And sometimes it can be both on the same day. And away from Olympians and successful entrepreneurs, a, a very common example that I think any driven person can relate to is for me, passion is great when I'm working on a book project and I have tunnel vision and the world around me completely disappears. I do my best writing. I feel great. I love it. If I let that tunnel vision escape my office and go to dinner when I'm playing with my three-year-old, it's no longer such a good thing. Yeah, it's, it's very so 
sobering. It's almost like uh, you have been given a little bit of a magic power, you know, in the force of passion, and you have to hold that very responsibly in your hands and uh, not let it rule you. You you have to still be able to direct it and rule it, right? That's kind of I think what I'm what I'm taking from this. Uh, Brad, let's apply what you've just shared into one crucible that I imagine you are feeling, you know, a little bit of heavy heartedness just as much as I am, which is this recent piece in the news about an organization that you kind of contributed to for a while and I did as well by being employed at McKinsey. And the announcements that have come out recently about the settlement they've done on the OxyContin opioid crisis issue, where the firm has acknowledged that a few partners and teams that were working with the Sackler family and uh, kind of doing consulting work and serving that client ended up uh, engaging in certain practices that they at least feel compelled at the present moment to do a fairly significant more than half a billion dollar settlement for. You know, it's just kind of shaking up a little bit that world of management consultancy, what its value system has and what might be, let's say, less complete in that value system. And in some ways makes them come into the limelight on something that so many businesses are starting to be forced to be reflective about, right? Their social contract. So do you see a connection between the hiccups that might have happened there and this tunnel vision thing that you're talking about? I do. And it's I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing this up. It's a challenging topic to talk about as an alumni of the firm. And um, the day that that news broke, I got a text message from the partner that I most enjoyed working with back in the day when I was at McKinsey, who has since long left the firm, saying that this could be a chapter in the passion paradox. Granted, the book had already been out. So I think there's a lot of relationship there. And I, I very much agreed with him. So I want to start because it is a touchy issue by saying that I'm not here to defend McKinsey or to you know write another hit piece on them. I think it's a complex situation. I think that a lot of the mistakes that they made in working with the Sackler family are real and, and they need to be held accountable for that. I don't, and I'm, so I should also say, I don't know the partners. I don't know the teams. It's long since I was at McKinsey. I'd like to think that no one there was evil intentioned. I don't think anyone went out to say, let's hook all these people on opioids. Let's advise Purdue Pharmaceutical to make their marketing materials in a predatory way. I can't imagine that was the problem statement. What I do think probably happened is that when you are a McKinsey consultant, when you are a partner and you have a direct line to the CEO of an enormous company, there is a big dopamine passion rush that comes with that. And you're working in this little team room and the ball gets rolling and those blinders come on. And pretty soon you are passionate about solving the problem for your client. And McKinsey's overarching core value is client service. Anyone on the call has been with McKinsey, you know, it's serve our clients, serve our clients, serve our clients. So you take highly driven, passionate people, put them on a time crunched, intense study, pay them a lot of money so they feel obligated to do good work, and then put these blinders on. And pretty soon, all you're trying to do as a consultant is solve the problem. And if you lose perspective about what that might actually mean in the real world, then you get something like advising a company in predatory marketing schemes to basically get people addicted to very potent drugs. That's the simple version. I mean, I do think it's complex, but like I said, I I don't think that anybody was ill-intentioned. I mean, you'd have to be a psychopath, literally, to say that, oh, we're going to get all these people addicted to drugs. I think it's probably more likely there was a very high degree of passion in that team and a complete loss of perspective. And what's fascinating on loss of perspective, to bring it back to the science in the book, there's some research that shows that if you scan the brain of somebody that is suffering from an eating disorder and you scan the brain of a highly passionate entrepreneur or Olympian, they look very similar. 
And the reason for that is both are delusional. So if you are suffering from an eating disorder and you look in the mirror, you do not see a gaunt, skinny, ill-looking person. You see someone that is fat. You literally cannot see reality as it is. If you are an Olympian trying to win a gold medal or an entrepreneur starting a company, you too have to be somewhat delusional because 99% of entrepreneurs fail and 99.9999% of athletes don't win gold medals. So it's, again, it's this nuanced thing and it's great to have that fuel and it's so easy to lose perspective. Yeah, thank you. You spoke on behalf of me as well in the way you offered a very thoughtful and balanced kind of perspective on this moment for, for McKinsey. I think that the firm has also taken it you know, in its stride and has really sought to find a way to be reflective in this moment and to, to grow from it and to, to refine certain elements of its uh, purpose and its mission in a way that will help it um, prevent you know, these kinds of moments in the future. And let's recognize you and I that this is an organization with thousands of right. consultants around the world, thousands probably of projects that they're working on every year. And this happened to be one radical outlier, right? But is not in any way close to the mainstream of the many ways in which it's uh, creating value, right? And um, the one thing there that uh, also got sparked in my mind, because when I remember my own time back there, is that there seemed to be a certain sense of almost purity, you know, purity of mission, purity of purpose, purity of kind of like what we were all coming together to do from time to time in the advancement of capitalism and of business. And uh, it seems almost that model is now something that the world is saying, you know what, it was probably well-intentioned and it probably got the world off to a couple of good strides in the 20th century and it probably created a lot of economic prosperity, but it's not a complete model. We need a couple of other principles, a couple of other facets, right, of the equation of life that you are saying is your passion. Does that make sense to you that moments like this might awaken us to the incompleteness of our model? It does. And I think that something in this is a big hope of mine, that moments like this don't lead to more black and white extreme thinking, but lead to more gray non-dual thinking. So passion is a perfect example. Passion is good. Passion is bad. No, passion can be good, passion can be bad, passion is both good and bad. McKinsey is good, McKinsey is bad. No, McKinsey can be good, McKinsey can be bad. Capitalism is good, capitalism is bad. No, both and. And I think that to transcend some of these models that we've relied so heavily upon, we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we have to bring more nuance to how we think about them and hold them non-dually. So embrace the complexity of things, embrace that most things are not good or bad. Most things are good and bad or are good in this circumstance, but bad in this circumstance. Another way that passion goes awry, and this is so common in the business world, is what researchers call the difference between harmonious passion and obsessive passion. Harmonious passion is when you are extremely passionate about doing the activity itself. So this is when you are the basketball player that loves the game. You are the McKinsey consultant that loves problem solving and loves working with other high-performing people. That's harmonious passion. Obsessive passion is when you become more passionate about the results and the external validation you get from doing the thing than the thing itself. So this is when you're the basketball player that's motivated by the all-star game or by all the endorsement deals, or you're the McKinsey consultant that is passionate about being able to tell your friends and family that you work at the firm or buying the nice car you get with your promotion. And what the research shows so crystal clearly is that harmonious passion is associated with happiness, health, and peak performance. Obsessive passion is associated with anxiety, depression, burnout, and unethical behavior. 
one of my, um, I shouldn't say it's a favorite study because it's a tragic study, but there's a study in the book that looked at athletes in these two types of passion. And what these researchers found is that athletes that have high degrees of obsessive passion are more likely to use steroids and cheat than those that don't. In one in five athletes with obsessive passion said they would die in five years if it meant that they won a gold medal. So you become so fixated on the result and so passionate about the result that of course it creates this distress or this temptation to cheat or engage in unethical behavior. And we like to think again that these things are black and white, but they're not. And it's very hard to stop obsessive passion because most people go on this trajectory. You pursue your interest, you cultivate a passion, and you become very good at the thing because you enjoy it and you're doing it a lot. Well, you become good at the thing and you start to get recognized. People tell you you're good. You make a bestseller list, you get promoted, you do win a medal, you get drafted by a team, whatever it is. And we're social creatures, so that feels really good. We just have to make sure that that's not the driving force behind our passion, because otherwise it leads us to really chase these outcomes at all costs. I want to just kind of acknowledge a couple of uh, comments. Kerry is talking about how I feel I have so many interests, but uh, no one specific passion. It is frustrating because I would love to be able to focus on one thing, to get good at one thing that is useful for this world. Can you speak to that a minute? Because like you've been emphasizing the importance of like, you know, like stepping back and really cultivating interests. Well, it, it's a question. So thank you, Kerry. It's a question that I get a lot which is I'm passionate about so many different things. And what I say to that is great, then pursue different things. There's no, there's no playbook that says that you need to be completely obsessed or passionate about one thing. There's no playbook that says that you need to have multiple interests. I think that we get into a lot of trouble trying to conform to these ideas that we have in our head of what it means to be a peak performer or what it means to be passionate versus really, you know, just kind of letting our own inquiry guide where we channel that. So if you step back to something that Hitindra asked me right from the get-go, like, can passion be uh, something that we're born with? And I said, I don't really think so. But passion itself can be a trait that is cultivated independent of the pursuit. So you can absolutely be a driven, passionate person that is driven about music, is driven about basketball, is driven about starting a company. And maybe you do all those things at once. Maybe there's a season of your life where you start a company and then a season of your life where you learn everything there is to learn about classical music. There's no right or wrong way to do it. I think I think what I'm hearing from you is something about like maximize the, you know, the life in your moments, right? Like uh, live every moment to its fullest and maybe you wouldn't have a singular direction for all of your life and a blueprint for everything for the future. But if you keep doing that, you know, that's one thing I found, by the way, Brad, like it's just a thought that's coming to my mind. When I look back at my life and I realize that I pivoted, you know, a few times from one passion, like mathematics was my original passion. It took me a lot to actually pull away from it because it was so seductive. It was so addicting, you know, in many ways. And yet I realized that it was limiting my frame to all the things I wanted to accomplish in life, that's when I joined McKinsey to kind of really, in a sense, go through a period of de-addiction from mathematics. But um, I look back and I feel like, you know, I'm glad I, I invested in it, you know, with passion at that time, because it kind of like honed and sharpened my craft, you know, of thinking in some ways. I'm glad I invested with passion at McKinsey because it actually helped me develop certain broader lenses through which to view the world and life and all. Does that make sense? Sometimes you move in a new direction in the future, but actually the hard well, that, Yeah, that gets back to following your interests. Right? Like maybe that's part of the problem again. Like, oh, I need to be passionate about math. No, like math was your interest then. You followed it. And you do take these experiences with you. You mentioned identity. You build an identity that is multifaceted. There's a reason that perhaps the most famous quote in Western poetry is Walt Whitman, I contain multitudes. Probably because it's true. <laughs> I mean, that resonates with a lot of people. 
That's beautiful. Can you can you speak to that like passion versus purpose? Like, what's your point of view on how they connect? I think that um, I think that they connect. Well, they can connect, and I think that ideally you get overlap between the two. So, if your purpose in life is to help help other people or build community or make creative work, and then if you have a lot of drive and you can direct that drive toward an activity that is aligned with your purpose. There's research that shows that you have a, a less chance of burning out and more chance of, I guess it's opposite of the same coin, of sustaining your performance. Uh, that's because having a strong purpose really helps during low periods and periods of fatigue to keep you going and to carry you through. That said, you can also have purpose that is very separate from passion. Your purpose could be spirituality or love, or you could be a very religious person. And you could also be a founder of a company that has nothing to do with spirituality or religion. And you could have a very fulfilled, happy life that way as well. Thank you. I'm going to think about that, actually. I've, I've been um, thinking a little bit about purpose is something that I'm very invested in as part of my teaching and study and research and all of that. And you brought in this dimension of passion now that I'm getting even more stimulated about as well. And so thank you for that as a way to kind of help connect the dots. Let's come back to maybe that identity topic then. Can you speak a little bit the sense of self and how that sort of, you know, gets identified at times with our causes, our goals, our, our passions, and, and what should we be watchful about that? So I'm so glad that you picked up on this, Itindra. This is, um, this is really important, good stuff. So back to obsessive passion or harmonious passion. If your identity gets totally, this is, this is nuanced. This is non-dual. I'm going to, I'm going to give that disclaimer. When your identity gets totally fused to a pursuit, it can be both a beautiful thing and a terrible thing and at different times. So when you are an athlete and your identity becomes an athlete, you put your all into that. You carry yourself like an athlete. That is how you live your life. If your passion is harmonious, that is wonderful until it's time to retire or until you get injured. Because then once you leave the thing that you're passionate about behind, well, then who are you? This is absolutely why so many athletes suffer from periods of depression or addiction when they retire from sport. It's why individuals that start companies that then move on tend to suffer from addiction and depression. And it's why people that retire after long fulfilling careers tend to suffer from depression and addiction. Because if your identity is very fused to this thing and you lose the thing, then it can really lead to a crisis. Why it's nuanced is because when you're doing the pursuit and your identity feels tied to it, it's wonderful. You feel like you're really expressing yourself in an act. So where I come out on this is I like to think of identity as something that is a little bit more fluid and also that is separate from anything that you do. So identity is this deeper part of you. It's almost like your awareness or the canvas upon which all the content of your life gets painted. And at times your identity confused with something. The skill is realizing when that's happening. And I'm going like this to show fusion. Maybe this is a better illustration. And then being able to create space when it is wise to create space. Does that make sense? Yeah. I talk about athletes often because I think that um, to me, it's the most extreme example because most athletes are forced to retire at a time when their cohort and their peers are just taking off in their careers. So I think most athletes retire between, I, I don't know the most recent data, but a few years ago, it was between 28 and 34. So at a time when everyone else in that age cohort is really coming into their own professionally, the thing that you've pursued your whole life with single-minded focus, you have to leave behind. Um, so it's almost like a double whammy because you look around you and you see all these people fusing identity to craft and being really fulfilled, and then you're having to leave it behind. So I think it's a really interesting subgroup of people to, to study because it is so extreme. 
Yeah, we had uh, Apollo Ono yeah. on this show um, some some weeks back, and yeah, um, the Weight of Gold, right? The documentary on HBO, is that right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, he he's an inspiring example of someone who kind of leaves the game at at its peak and goes ahead and starts to reinvent himself. He's kind of like in our space of like peak performance coaching and doing beautiful work and advancing uh, himself beyond just pure athleticism. And he's written a new book on around like hard pivot, you know, kind of like how, how to make these kinds of shifts in your life. So I think he's, he's a very kindred spirit around this idea that you talked about, about athletes peaking at a certain very young age and need, needing to reinvent themselves and their identity, right, going forward. Entrepreneurs too. I mean, that's the other subgroup where in order to be a successful entrepreneur, we already talked about it, you have to be a little bit delusional in a good way. And often you really have to push hard and go all in for a period of time. And most venture capital firms will tell you that they are basically investing in the founder. So how do you not fuse your identity with the company? And that's great until your company fails or until your company is acquired and you're no longer the only decision maker. So it's about this is identity. This is the thing that you're passionate about, realizing when they converge, but always keeping just a degree or two of separation between the two so that when, what hand am I doing? When this thing goes away, this doesn't follow it. Oh, that's beautiful. That's so well put because I love this idea that don't sort of deny yourself that fusion of identity, which is so important for you to manifest fully what the possibilities there are, but keep just that little distance as well at the same time. I think, you know, my sense is that although you're highlighting a couple of careers where people are more prone to this, my sense is that this probably is very pervasive everywhere. You know, yeah. lawyers get very identified with their craft of like just like maybe practicing law and doctors are practicing physicians medicine. i was going to say doctors are another example 100 percent. yeah and then that moment comes where one needs to do a hard pivot maybe when you retire or or something else some other life-changing circumstance takes you in a new direction and to be able to unwean yourself of that, right? Isn't it? Uh, that's uh, that's so that's so crucial. Um, you know, for people who are struggling, you know, on a daily basis, maybe uh, having difficult circumstances or in survival mode, mm -hmm. is there like a passion path to perhaps uh, helping them kind of like rebound or recover or just uh, yeah, just kind of address those situations? Is there a role for passion there? So I, I guess what I would say is, without having more context, I think if survival mode is a lack of like, food or shelter or basic need needs, then nothing I'm saying is going to be helpful until those basic needs are met. Um, so this this stuff is not a replacement for having, and I consider basic needs, food, shelter, healthcare. Another thing that I would say is if it's more of a mental health challenge, where perhaps you feel like you can't get passionate about anything, or you don't have purpose, or you're having all these intrusive thoughts and feelings that you struggle to get rid of. I think hopefully listening to this is a little bit helpful, but I'd also say that seeking a therapist, probably much more helpful than any book on passion that I'm going to write. I know you study purpose a lot, Hitendra, because I've, I'm someone that has experienced a pretty dark depression. And an underlying factor of that is a loss of purpose. And I'm such a purpose-driven person. So it was utterly disorienting for me not to have purpose and just learning that even something like purpose is non-dual. So there are periods in your life where purpose goes away, where passion goes away and you don't have to like it. But if you judge yourself and then you say, oh, something's wrong with me, I don't have purpose or something's wrong with me, I can't get passionate. That just entrenches the feeling. So I think that all of these very powerful attributes that are seen as positive, whether it's drive, passion, purpose, pushing, you also kind of have to marry them with self-compassion and acceptance and realizing that there are highs and lows. And when you're on a high and everything's clicking, you should ride it. But when you're in a low, you should have the faith that you can work your way out of that low too. And sometimes it takes help to do so.
Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that uh, personal episode as well. You know, it's it's actually really, um, I think, going to be a value to so many of us because, Brad, I mean, you, you come across as like, you know, someone who gets it, who knows it, who's like on a very steady path and who's, uh, you know, had a good dose of accolade and success and achievement in the world and, and all of those good things, both from the inside and from the outside. And that fusion the inner and the outer is so, so rare to see in the world that, you know, there are many of us sitting here and looking at you and saying like, Oh wow! And then and then you share this moment where you struggle with depression and oh for a year I had no idea like it was hard for me to leave the house maybe not a year maybe it was eight months and like without a therapist that was just so skilled and wonderful I don't know if I'd be here right now certainly probably not having this level of talk and I think it's important because very few people are like completely put together and these episodes are just a part of being a human. And I think the more vulnerable that we can be about them, the more that we can help each other and, and have compassion. That's beautiful. Uh, I think there's something really important there for all of us to reflect on, uh, Brad, about like stepping back and how you kind of, the level of abstraction and uh, breadth of applicability with which you're defining your, your your passion, right? I remember for years, I was really regretting how much heart and toil and sweat and blood and tears I put into math because like I moved way on and I was like so many years until I realized actually, wait, wait a second, right you are who you are because of that passion for math because it gave you a certain appreciation of perfection in life and purity which are attributes i see in mathematics precision pattern recognition a um, persistence of just keeping on trying and trying until you get to an answer so suddenly i realized like, oh okay those are the qualities i was actually pursuing it wasn't mathematics mathematics was the outer form so i really relate to what you just right. said right and i'm hearing i'm hearing a lot of um mastery or like um maybe intellect is the ultimate underlying value or like the desire to make sense of things or to understand. And that my guess is throughout your career has been steady, but where you've pointed it has been different. Mathematics, business, PhD research, teaching, McKinsey, these things look a little bit disparate, but maybe underneath that is deeply understanding things or deeply understanding things. And then as you've gotten older, sharing them. Beautiful. Um, when we had the previous question about having a multiplicity of interests, maybe there's a little bit of something in what you just said here, which is you could have a multiplicity of interests, but you could also ask yourself, what is the common denominator? I think I'm hearing you say. Yep, that's a great point. Yeah, beautiful. If one has a tendency to be delusional, not in a healthy way, what are the techniques to switch the brain to focus on something more productive and healthy? Yeah. So again, the first thing I'd say is I'm not a clinical therapist. And I think if you're suffering, the best thing to do is to find a, a clinical therapist, a professional and, and work with them, or at least try to find the right fit and work with someone. What I can say from a scientific or research perspective is that over the past 20 years, there's been a shift in um, the third wave therapies for uh, anxiety, depression. Um, I don't know as much about eating disorders, associate eating disorders with obsessions, very much obsessions too, that we used to think that you had to be very motivated to do something and that the action would follow motivation or that your brain would have to be on a certain wavelength to act. That has shifted. Now, studies have shown pretty conclusively that it's often the opposite, that mood follows action. This is particularly true for individuals experiencing depression. The technique in, in scientific speak is behavioral activation, which basically says that you don't have to feel good to get going. You need to get going to give yourself a chance at feeling good. And with obsessions perhaps around food, you're not going to think yourself into being able to eat. You're going to have to eat yourself into being able to eat. 
And that's why so many intensive recovery programs for eating disorder, they focus a lot on the emotional side of things, but they also focus just on you're going to sit down and eat this regardless of how it makes you feel because you're retraining the body that you can get into motion and be okay. Thank you. That uh, That's actually quite quite helpful. I, I'm just in my mind sparked with this sort of uh, idea that, you know, there's the physical self, there's the mental self, there's the emotional self. I, I don't know if you think about like a spiritual self, you know, that each of us has. And each of those are interconnected. And, and sometimes you can use one or the other to help put yourself back into a good place, right? And I think I'm hearing you say, sometimes don't think as much about the mental, the thoughts aspect, just, just go for the, like the physical side of just doing something. Yeah, there's five dimensions of health that the WHO uses. I think it's physical, emotional, social, spiritual, maybe intellectual, but very much similar. Really smart people that study public health have come to the same conclusion. Those things don't always have to be in balance. Sometimes you're lacking here and you can be strong here. I'd say that you never want to leave one completely behind. Beautiful. You had the third of your three-part sequence of the myths that are prevailing out there that you found it important to challenge, right? And the third one was around the relationship between passion and balance. Yeah. Right. Can you talk about that for a couple of minutes? What did you discover about that relationship? So in short, trying to be really passionate and balanced at the same time never works. And you just end up feeling like you're stretched too thin or you're doing a mediocre job at everything, but you're not really doing great at any one thing. So where I've come out on this topic is that instead of striving to be balanced, strive to have the self-awareness to understand what matters to you, prioritize accordingly, point your energy and passion towards those things that matter to you, and be able to evaluate and shift when necessary. So much easier said than done. But that's it in a nutshell. So I am not a balanced person at all. I can't even, my wife kills me. I can't even unload the dishwasher and have a conversation at the same time. I have to do one thing at a time. I have to single task. And my strength is very much that. But my weakness can be, again, like I mentioned, when those blinders go on, it's hard to take them off. So rather than try to be balanced and constantly be doing everything, I think it's about developing the self-awareness to say, hey, right now I'm devoting like 80% of my time and my energy to a book project. First, just being aware that you're doing it. Second, asking yourself, well, do I want to be doing it? Are the important people in my life, are they okay with it? How long should I do this for? It's easy to tell myself it's only going to be two weeks, but what if on the third week, you know, someone tweets about my book and they want to do more interviews and you can kind of get sucked in. So just having the self-awareness to constantly ask yourself, what matters most to me? How am I spending my time? Does this still make sense today? Because what might have made sense a year ago might not make sense now. I am getting sparked with uh, a conversation I had with one of my colleagues at Mentora Institute, uh, Dr. Josh Davis, who's written a book on four awesome hours. Like, how do you get the most out of sort of like time? And one of the things that he spoke about there is that this kind of tunnel vision, all-consuming focus state that one gets into sometimes leads one to overinvest in something uh, because one just doesn't have the self-awareness as to the other commitments one has in life in that moment as well and therefore actually when there are randomized break moments that come that push us out, out of that frame yeah. it can be actually a good thing because then you can reevaluate. Uh, what yeah, do you there's, there's two there's two really practical techniques i like here they both fall under this notion of self-distancing which is literally a way to create space between your true self and what you're doing right and then one is to pretend that a good friend is in the same situation and then give advice to that friend and actually follow the advice that you give that friend 
And then the other is to look down the road and pretend that you're 10, 15 years wiser version of yourself looking back on yourself right now. What would that wiser version of yourself tell you to do? And how you answer those two questions is often very different than what you feel like you want to do in the moment. So it's like that to make it like really real, right? Let's say you've got that tunnel vision and it's on and you're, you're pushing really hard at some kind of pursuit and you've got two young kids. And if a friend came to you and said, man, it's eight o'clock at night, I'm in a groove. I really want to keep pushing. I've been pushing the last three nights. Should I keep working till nine or should I read my kid a bedtime story? You're probably going to tell the friend to read the kid a bedtime story. And that's probably what you should do. I really loved your use of the phrase, your true self. So there's your true self. And then there's what you're, what you're doing, doing in the moment. I think that's such a beautiful way of thinking about sort of creating a little bit of that distance and getting, getting to connect with that authentic core. So beautiful. Uh, Brad, you have a very impressive aura, a poise, a clarity of thought, you know, certain depth of conviction in the, in the way you communicate, you know, your ideas and your thoughts. And I'm just curious to see where all of this comes from. If you go back to your own sort of growth journey, your own formative years, and then the couple of pivotal moments where you shifted into the frame that you now are pursuing. Can you, can you weigh in on that a little bit for us? Tell us a little bit about that personal journey. So it's, it's funny because, um, it very much mirrors a lot of the things that I've, I've since learned in the research and I didn't know it at the time, but I'm very fortunate that, um, that it played out as such and, and probably good parenting at the time as well. So I really wanted to be a writer. And I applied to Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism, which is the best journalism school in the country. And I got rejected. I didn't get in. And like any 17-year-old, I said, oh, I guess I'm not going to be a writer. And here I am now writing. And it's just so remarkable because I went to Michigan, like you you shared at the beginning. I studied organizational behavior. I went to public health school. But all along, I was still telling stories and communicating and writing. Even at McKinsey and Company, I think McKinsey and Company is a great place to go train to be a nonfiction writer because every single PowerPoint slide deck recapping a study is writing a nonfiction book, right? You're there to solve a thorny problem. You do research, you talk to experts, you tell some stories, you present the data. If you're good, you tell the client how you might be wrong, and then you recommend a conclusion. And that is the exact same process as writing a nonfiction book. So even though I wasn't pursuing writing or communication per se, that underlying interest or energy was still being expressed in these other areas that I was. And I think I just kept pursuing that interest within reason and caught some lucky breaks. And and now here I am. I think that if if I would have said, I'm going to be a writer come hell or high water, I probably wouldn't be here today. Yeah. So I am curious to see how you allowed yourself to be not too shaped or influenced by the practices and expectations of people around you, because you pursued a little bit of like the more mainstream path. But then, you know, like being at McKinsey, you know, is kind of a peak performance state for most people in the professional business world. And then you pull back, you you had a whole world of opportunities that could have opened up to you both within the firm and beyond. And the choice you made was one which is way off like most of the beaten paths, right? And so can you talk a little bit about sort of what allowed you to think so independently? I wish I knew. And I and it's funny because to me, I don't even know if I think if it was such independent thinking. I think I identified what I really liked about McKinsey and then what I didn't like. And I tried to craft my next steps around what I liked. So I love the intellectual exploration. I liked working with smart people. 
I hated the mathematical modeling. So uh -huh. your old self and my old self would have been on different extremes, but I really liked the storytelling. I loved the reading, the research. I didn't love the travel. I didn't love the time pressure, some of which seemed artificial on those studies. So I think I said like what I, if I think back, what I really liked at that time was being able to go very deep on a topic, learn a lot about it, and then have interesting conversations with people. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I, I didn't say, oh, that means I'm going to try to be an author because I didn't know that I was going to be an author. I went to public health school, but I think I just always asked myself for whatever I was doing, let's call those core values. Would this work in service of those core values? So answered the question for me. If McKinsey would have been a place where I felt there was more time and space to get really deep on a topic and you didn't have to travel, I might still be at McKinsey and be very happy there. So that was, I guess, how I did it at the time. But it's important because I, it gets back to a hypothesis that we tested in the book. I didn't have a preordained or pre-planned path. It was very much about having a sense of what I enjoy, what matters to me, what I think I'm good at, and then trying to pursue things that have a good fit. Talk about closing. Tell us a little bit about the book that you have uh, just coming to the bookshelves. Yeah. So the practice of groundedness comes out in September and that book really explores what are the foundational principles or practices that lead to a durable, more fulfilling kind of success. So it argues to your point just now that so many people that are high performing pushers, they're very successful by conventional measures, but often they still don't feel fulfilled or they feel like they always need to have more or do more or be more. In the book, I call it both heroic individualism, like this self-limiting belief that you constantly need to beat yourself or beat others or never enough syndrome. You know, it's just never enough. You always need more. And I was very curious, well, what is the latest research? What is history? And what do ancient wisdom traditions have to say about marrying the pursuit of excellence, which feels very good, with some kind of foundational contentedness or ability just to be strong and solid where you are. And like I said, I don't write because I have these things figured out. I write to figure them out. So this book was a multi-year exploration of what it takes to be grounded. And what I've learned in the books is that if you can cultivate this principle that I call ground, or excuse me, this quality that I call groundedness, it's not that you stop striving or that your ambition goes away, but it's much more situated and it feels much more durable that way. Wonderful. We are much looking forward, Brad, to having you back with us once that book is launched uh, so that we can talk more about uh, the research you've done there. But you've given us such a rich fare for today that I want to hold back on that discussion because there's, you know, there's already so much for us, I think, to reflect on and assimilate and start to maybe practice in our own lives. Folks, I highly recommend, of course, that you, know, you get Brad's book for even more of a chance to dive deep into these ideas around passion. This has been incredibly thought-provoking and, and inspiring. Thank you so much, Brad. Any, any fun, like, final closing thoughts, especially given given the conditions that humanity, you know, has fallen, you know, in, in recent days, right, around around the pandemic, and in some ways, you know, conditions of unrest, geopolitically and socially, anything around how passion can be actually a path towards uh, a greater amount of sort of, you know, recovery and, and uh, coping with these conditions? Yeah, I think it comes back to identify what matters to you and, and what you want to work in service of and, and then do what you can to devote your energy toward those things. And at the same time, realize that life is uh, very much rhythmic highs and lows. And it's important to enjoy the highs because that sense of enjoyment will sustain you during the lows. And it's also important to remember that just like the highs are impermanent, so are the lows. Yeah, yeah this is beautiful. Thank you so much, Brad. Uh, I wish you well for the next several months and uh, much looking forward to having all of us back together 
to discuss uh, groundedness with you in, in a few months' time. Very grateful uh, for your insights and thoughts. Wonderful conversation. I'll end how I started. Thank yeah, you. Yes. Thank you too. Namaste. <laughs>